Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie DeLaCensory and Sean Spittler. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Katie DeLaCensory, and I am the historian for the Veterans Health Administration. Joining me today is my co-host, producer extraordinaire, Sean Spittler. Ahoy, hoy. How are you, Katie? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I am very excited for this week's episode. We are talking to Fred Downs and Glenn Clutie, and they are both representing past and present VHA prosthetics. And I think prosthetics in general are pretty fascinating. How about you? I think they're absolutely fascinating. And I'm I'm so excited to talk with Fred and talk with Glenn because you're right. It just sort of gives us this bookend view of how prosthetics in the VA have evolved and what amazing things they're working on for the future. Being that we are a history-driven podcast and you happen to be the resident historian, do you have any interesting nuggets for us on, on the history of prosthetics? I do. I do. Prosthetics have been a part of VA services since 1862. Can you give me, what's in 1862? Help me picture that. What's going on? Who's president? Does Amazon exist yet? (laughs) All right. So 1862, middle of the Civil War. Lincoln is president. We are engaged in a struggle in our nation. And it is this time that the nation decides to offer its veterans prosthetic services for the first time, just because there have been so many limb losses during the war. Um, But then also battlefield medicine is evolving to a point now where people are able to survive some of these wounds, whereas they haven't been able to in the past. So VA starts providing these prosthetic services then. And then after the war, VA opens what are known as the soldiers' homes, the National Mm. Homes for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers, which is actually where the birth of VHA comes from. And so there were these different homes for soldiers around the country where they could go and get rehabilitative services. They could live according to as if they were still sort of in the military. They had like gardens and libraries and theaters and they were real communities. So kind of like a nursing home, but not for old people. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. Just and for for military veterans, a lot of them could get not only prosthetic services there, but they could also be around their fellow soldiers who have had been through what they had been through. So it's a community based idea. Yeah. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And so then over time, prosthetics continue to evolve. And by 1945, you have the GI Bill which guarantees prosthetics and rehabilitative services to every veteran. And you also have an increased population of veterans who have survived their wounds again due to battlefield medicine. So you have a lot of veterans by 1945 who are needing prosthetic help, Hmm. not only devices, but how to use them and how to be rehabilitated in society. And the VA had evolved by that point because there were no longer these, you know, soldiers' homes. They weren't going out and living the rest of their lives in these campus-like locations. 
they were going back to their families, going back to their life, going mm -hmm. back to society, and they needed that rehabilitative support to, to learn how to use their device. And so they could go back. You have several individuals, General Omar Bradley, Dr. Paul Hawley, and Dr. Paul Magnuson, who really spearheaded a lot of VA's efforts in cutting through that red tape right. uh, in 1945 to ensure the, the men that Omar Bradley sent to the beaches in D-Day were getting the help and support that they needed when it came to prosthetic devices. Very cool. Yeah. So after that, you see a whole lot more money being devoted and not only money, but research space in hospitals being devoted to studying prosthetics and to helping veterans obtain them and then be able to use them. Very cool. So this brings us up to, to Fred Downs. Yep, this brings us up to a uh, 23-year-old platoon leader, Fred Downs, who we're going to hear from. Yes, and so Fred is fascinating to listen to. Such Sean, I don't I don't know about you, but I could have listened to Fred all day. I could. He and I think he could have talked to us all day. amazing stories. He definitely could have <laughs> talked to us all day. <laughs> and so without further ado, let's join Fred Downs Jr., retired national director of the Prosthetic and Sensory Aid Service and Chief Procurement and Logistics Officer for VHA. Fred Downs, thank you for joining us on the show today. We're very excited to speak with you. Well, it's a pleasure talking to all of you. I hope I've contributed to uh, somewhat to your the history of the VA. And uh, Can you kind of compare your treatment and how your prosthetic experience and what you saw as head of the Prosthetic Services Division and, and what's going on today, just kind of Give us an overview of some of the change over time that you've seen in your time with, with VA. Yes. Well, I wanted to be a farmer all my life. But instead, there was a war going on. I didn't want to miss it. Went through basic training, qualified for OCS, officer candidate school. And then I was sent to Vietnam. And I was an infantry lieutenant, led a platoon for about almost five months. During that period of time, I got shot uh, twice and hit with shrapnel. Hmm. A couple of times, but they were just all flesh wounds. On January 11th, 1968, I stepped in what they call a bouncing Betty landmine, which is a landmine that bounds out of the ground, flies up out of the ground and explodes waist high. And it right. went off my left hip, blew off my left arm above the elbow and caused grievous damage to my right arm and to my buttocks and my legs. And I was at, uh, they took me, a helicopter picked me up. I had my machine gun. I went over and picked up my arm. I didn't want to leave it behind. What was left of it? There was a hand and the wrist was left, but everything else was had been vaporized. Mm -hmm. So he laid that across my stomach and then my right arm, which I could um, I could see both bones from the wrist to the elbow. He laid that across my my stomach. Two of my men were screaming. I remember being on the lower tier, three tiers of stretchers, and blood was dripping down from above the men above me, onto me. The only thing that really hurt me was my foot. Right. Uh, everything else, I was just like overloaded with pain and just numb, sort of. And I asked him if he'd cut my uh, cut my boot off because my foot just hurt so bad. And, of course, that foot still full of shrapnel today. He got me to the second surge, and uh, he says, who tied this damn tourniquet? <laughs> <laughs> and it had been my medic, of course. And then my heart stopped. And after that, I was known as the uh, <laughs> as the lieutenant they brought back from the dead. And I came to, I don't know how, how much longer, hours later. And uh, they'd use closed heart massage and direct IVs and 
got my heart going again. Then I went back, I was discharged in 1969, January. And so somebody said, you ought to join the Veterans Administration. Then I went for the work for the VA in 1974. Then I was called back to Washington by um, Dorothy Starbuck, the chief benefits director. But she said we had an offer from Dr. Custis, who was the chief medical officer for the Department of Medicine and Surgery. He said, I want you to take over a prosthetic and sensory aid service. So 30 years later, I was still the uh, national director of prosthetic and sensory aid service because I loved that service. They had direct relationship to disabled veterans. It was a, When I took it over, it was in terrible shape, and there was great resistance to spending money, great resistance to uh, any to new technology. There was chaos. There was no uniform program, no the policies. There weren't any good policies or directives. It was in shambles, just like Dr. Custis said it was. So I designed the whole service and set up a national training program for prosthetic reps, and and I fought for veterans because uh, I thought that was my job. Even though I worked for the VA, my job was also to work for v, for the veterans and disabled veterans. And so I made a lot of things happen. I was uh, one of those angry Vietnam veterans. I was pissed off and at the government. I wanted them to do right. Here I was in a position to make it happen. <laughs> I started shaking things up right from the get-go. I walked into the office, my new office, and it was crowded. And So I asked for directives and stuff, and I didn't have anything. I said, now, when I come in on Monday, I want to see the directives and policies and, and you know how you run things. How, we, how do we provide prosthetics across the country and how we coordinate it with all the other services? I came in on Monday, and there were cardboard boxes all over the office. No files, no nothing, and just uh, there was paper just thrown in these boxes. I said, "What are you guys doing?" And they said, "Well, that we don't. That is it. Been around since World War II, so we just got stuff in here." So I'll tell you what I want you to do is this week you all work on it. Next weekend, and I said, "When I come in on Monday, I want to see it organized." And so when I came in on Monday, they hadn't done a damn thing, and they weren't going to. They said because it was just the way they'd always done it. So uh, the next weekend, I came in, I took everything out of the files, I put them in boxes, and I threw them out in the hall. And so when my staff came to work on Monday, they were down on their hands and knees, sorting through those papers and stuff. And I, I told them, it's a new day dawning, we're going to make things happen. Right. And, <laughs> and so I started weeding all those folks out. The other obstacle I had to, to overcome was, they didn't want to... Central office didn't want to spend any money on prosthetics. There was a budget. On one hand, they always said, yeah, we'll spend money on wheelchairs and prosthetics. But by the time it dribbled down to the local level, why, there wasn't any motivation or passion to do that. In the field, if there was something that was prescribed and they were afraid to approve it, why, there was a form, a 2641. They would send that form to central office you get it off their back and have central office take the responsibility and the risk for approving it. I would, I was approving these things right and left. They'd come in from the field because people were just terrified to make a decision. I remember one time it came in and it was for a hot pink wheelchair, sports wheelchair. <laughs> and of course the VA was dead set against any sports wheelchair or light wheelchair ahead of the old black model. You know, that's it, the old clunkers. And I said, no, no, we need the new modern stuff. So here it came in. It was for a hot pink wheelchair. This woman veteran, paraplegic, that's what she wanted. 
And I went down and talked to the SCI director, and I said, this is, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Here's new modern kind of technology, hot pink, lightweight, sports wheelchair, and this lady needs it. She said, fine, go ahead. So I proved it and sent it back to the field level. Well, they had a heart attack back there because fiscal said, they, they said, oh, my God, that costs too much money and blah, blah, blah. So they went through their chain of command back up to – they got all the way to the, the CFO there and, and CO. So they had a big meeting with – called me upstairs. And, of course, they always do that to try and intimidate, you know, and I wasn't about to be intimidated. <laughs> and they said, Downs, you, you've approved this, this wheelchair that cost, you know, a couple thousand dollars more than our, what we usually provide. I said, that's right. I said, she needs this wheelchair. And they said, well, how can you justify that? And I, and as usual, I kind of got hot and I slammed the hook on the table and I said, by God, I said, this woman, she needs her black wheelchair for work during the week, but she needs her hot pink wheelchair for going out on Friday and Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) I said, Wheelchairs, prosthetics, they're an extension of who we are as disabled people. And a couple of thousand dollars, I said, you know, when I was a lieutenant in combat, I called in airstrikes, artillery. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars a day sometimes blowing villages up, destroying things, even killing people. And so we're going to deny this veteran uh, something because it costs $2,000 more. And I slammed my hook on the table. Oh, no, no, Mr. Downs, we didn't mean that. Of course we went to the third place. <laughs> Oh, I was having a field day. Oh, Max Cleveland. That is he was amazing. He was That's great. He was chuckling back there. He he, he loved it. Because I just had a reputation of being outspoken and, and still pissed off being a Vietnam vet. <laughs> and besides which, it's an obligation for the VA to live up to its, to what it said it was doing. Taking care of vets. Because it, and I'm still passionate about it. You know, I, I would have never thought of, but now that you say it, it, it seems like common sense, which is, is that the prosthetic is an extension of your personality. Of who you are. Absolutely. Right. That's the reason this stuff is so important. So I remember when the uh, Seattle Foot came out, Ernie Burgess, who was, who was famous World War II doctor, amputee surgeon out in Seattle, and he came up with the idea of uh, using new technology composite material to have an ankle that would bend back and forth, sort of like a leaf spring. And, uh, right. and of course, now the plastic industry, they didn't spend any money on developing new ankles or new feet because that, the, the feet they've been using for decades only cost them pennies to make. Ernie used his own money, got a, a little company going, and they manufactured a number of these Seattle feet. And so I worked with him because he worked for the VA. And so I worked with him and said, okay, we'll buy, we'll buy 500 of these, send them to all the prosthetic services across the country, and they begin using these and prescribing them. We primed the pump on that, and, and the vets loved that ankle that, that articulated their foot, made their foot more like walking. Uh, as you can imagine, the right. loose spring. This was made out of a carbon poly uh, plastic kind of thing. I don't know what it was. That was the first of the articulating kind of feet. And, of course, today you see on TV, you see all this stuff where these guys are running on all kinds of uh, different types of limbs and feet and have computer knees. They said, well, you, you only get one prosthetic. And I said, well, no. I mean, these things wear out. And they said, well, we can't give them two legs. So they set one leg in the closet and they, and they won't use it and it'll, it'll, it's a waste of money. So 
every veteran was only issued one prosthetic device for their whole life? No, no. They just, in, in one, it couldn't have a spare. Okay. Oh, a spare. Okay. And it couldn't have, it couldn't have a spare. And of course, if you're dependent upon this stuff, when it breaks down, you're screwed. Like a wheelchair. When it breaks down, what do you think a wheelchair person does? You know, they, they were really trapped. How can you, right. you're not able to, because wow. here's, here's the thing you, you, you have with your upper extremity limbs that provide you independence, your ability to take care of yourself, shave, go to the bathroom, do that kind of stuff. And, and when you when it's your legs that's involved, right, that's your mobility. So these mm-hmm. prosthetic devices, they provide you mobility and independence and returns you, your, your dignity to you as a human being. That's extremely important to keep that in mind, especially when you're first wounded or first hurt and your life's in disarray and you think the end of the world's coming and all the rest of it. And then you begin to understand that, well, no, not exactly. I can do things now. And so uh, that's why it's important. And so I advocated that we could, you know, you can have more than one limb. So you can have, well, you have a walking limb and you can have a running limb and you can have a swim limb and you can have a limb that you use in the shower. So it's four different limbs. You can have those all at the same yeah. time. I remember the computer knee, Otto Bach, a German prosthetic manufacturer. Right. They came up with things quicker than America did because America wasn't spending a lot of money in development. But right. the, the, Germans, the Germans were. And the, the Germans developed a computer knee. And so uh, I got wind of this, and my staff and I, and of course, of the three staff members I had that were Vietnam vets, two of them were uh, leg amputees. And it worked well in Europe, so my thinking was, and our thinking was, well, oh, it should work here in America, too. <laughs> yeah. But it cost, but it cost money. Gee, money. <laughs> right. So, so, so we went through the process, and uh, I said, well, the first people going to try it's going to be my staff. <laughs> and so Mike, who's a golfer, well, I, uh, he loved it because it enabled him to walk two, three times the, the the length of his day, whatever he was doing, it was it it, it uh, was so much better for him in a physical sense. He didn't have to spend so much energy moving that prosthetic limb. So now that we're kind of on the topic of future and advancement, can you talk a little bit about what you know about the Luke arm and, and kind of what excites you about the future of prosthetic devices? Yeah, I remember when they uh, they came to me and they said, uh, "Let this robotic arm up here." Uh, we want the VA to, to test. Well, I didn't believe in, in that the robotic arm was really going to work because one thing I saw a lot of over the years is great ideas, but they weren't practical. Right. And so I said, well, I'll volunteer to uh, you know be one of your guinea pigs. And so they fitted me with the prosthetic arm. This was up at DECA there in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was when they were first trying it out, and the VA was just looking at it and and analyzing it. So I, I went up there and they fitted me for it. It's a lot of back and forth between here and there. And the controls, how would I control the hand and the arm? We decided that I could use my feet to control it. Interesting. I first used pads that would slip into my boots. By pressing my toes and blocking on my heels, turning my foot sideways, they they had uh, wires that went right underneath my clothes to, to the arm itself. And within a couple of hours, I could I could utilize that thing. Wow. Fact, there's, a, there's a famous picture of me drinking a bottle of water using my yeah. left hand or my hook or my hand. I said, Luke arm. Ah, 
I had tears in my eyes. First right. time in 40 years I could do something with my left arm. <laughs> what That's a great picture. <laughs> what an emotional kick that was. They wanted me to test it in real life. And for two weeks, why I would wear that arm from my house to work. Movement is what causes it, uh, the computer to interpret what's going on. And so right. I got on the metro and I didn't turn the daggone arm off. So when the metro started up and going forward, well, the arm came up all by itself at the elbow. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't stop it. It got all the way up. And then as the car, as the train slowed down, why the arm went back down. Wow. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and that's then I interesting. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of thing that a field trial is all about. Right. Yeah. It is very practical for certain things that I want to do around the house or in the garage or in the kitchen, especially great in the kitchen when I'm cooking. And then uh, my wife said, uh, I should have learned how to do that a long time ago anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, those are some of the highlights of my career. I ended up my career being the chief officer for procurement and logistics in the VHA. Well, Fred, it's just been an absolute pleasure for both of us to speak with you today. And thanks for sharing some of some of VA history with us. If you have any more questions and such, please contact me again. All right, Sean. So we're going to kick things off with a little bit of trivia. Okay. Are you a trivia? Are you are you a trivia fan? I I'm really bad at it. I could well, never, ever win at Jeopardy. If you need a history person, I'm I'll be on your team. OK, <laughs> Deal. all right. Can you guess? where and when the earliest known prosthetic device comes from it, the nerd in me wants to answer this and point out that star wars takes place a long time ago and the <laughs> galaxy far far away <laughs> i i honestly have no idea would you guess ancient egypt oh you know i if i had thought about it real hard i may mm -hmm. I, I believe that absolutely there you go yeah so experts found a three thousand year old artificial toe attached to a mummy in a tomb near luxor a toe and they think that it was refitted to her to provide comfort support and stability but isn't that what's isn't fascinating that is that it it's a toe right like you would just think i would think i'll just learn to live without my toe but but it also makes sense because like ancient egyptians like they wear sandals you know yeah. so your feet are like Vanity. exposed yeah. yeah yeah that to me just speaks volumes about how integral prosthetics have been to to us as humans and it just like i i love that like you know something from from the past can inform your understanding about yeah. you know you're you're constantly learning stuff and good good job ancient egyptians <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Joining us is Glenn Cludy, research career scientist and professor at the University of Washington. Glenn, it is awesome to have you with us. It is my pleasure as well. In addition to telling stories from VHA history, the other mission of this program is to capture and preserve what is going on in VA today. So when looking to record and preserve your story for history, tell us a little bit about your background and how you started at the VA. Wow, that's going way back in the time machine. Uh, I got my doctorate degree from the University of Washington in the Department of Bioengineering where I was studying biorobotics. And that turns out to be a really nice natural fit with creating next generation prosthetic 
lower limbs for veterans who've had an amputation. So I'm I'm very curious about the the bio. What was it? Oh, bioengineering, and that was my what my degree was in. But biorobotics is an area of research where we try to build robotic devices and software that mimics what the natural body does so well. And sometimes that includes robots that behave like humans behave. And sometimes that involves building devices that are a little softer than your rigid, typical robot that might build automobiles in Detroit, but instead can move like a person can move. So it uses muscles or actuators that work like muscles, and it uses sensors that sense things like, well, the sensors we find in the human body. How have things changed? How have the needs of veterans changed? Can you just kind of give us a little bit more insights into your your career uh, with VA? Yeah, the needs of veterans who have had an amputation, uh, I'd say, haven't really changed much at all. They really still want a limb that could let them do what the limb they had before they lost it could let them do. So what we try to design hasn't changed much at all. However, the technologies that we can make use of has changed a lot. The microcontrollers or small computers that we used in the mid-90s are a far cry from the, well, small computers that we can embed a low-level artificial intelligence on are dramatically more powerful today, which really opens up a huge horizon of things that we can ask these limbs to do. And probably the most exciting thing that we're asking these limbs to do is to infer from the surroundings and from the person's actions what it was they wanted the limb to do and then have it automatically do that. So that requires, if you will, at least a low level of intelligence that, well, 20 years ago wasn't even available to us. So that's one thing that's changed a lot. And then the second thing has changed that I think we've all witnessed is the battery sizes and what a battery can do today is vastly different than what a battery could do in the mid, late 90s, early 2000s. They're just much more powerful. They can be recharged so much quicker. And so their size and dimensions, and most importantly for us, their weight has really become so much smaller that those two things together, the computational power and the battery density, those two innovations have really opened up what we can do with a prototype prosthetic limb. I mean, and, and from a historical perspective, you know, VA has been providing prosthetics to veterans since after the Civil War in the 1860s. And so it's just amazing to hear how much has been developed so recently compared with how static some of those technologies remained, you know, in the 1800s and the 1900s. So it's just incredible to hear what is being able to be achieved today. Yeah, I think after World War II, a historical perspective might be that limbs were created by artisans and that each was done one at a time. And after World War II, there were advances in manufacturing processes 
that allowed limbs to be, well, mass-produced. So some of the things that, well, they were able to build in the 50s and 60s really relied on, you know, factories to build. And then in the 80s, you might say that there were new materials that came along, specifically carbon fiber and epoxy components that became integrated into the structural elements of prosthetic lower limbs. And those were a great advance because basically they act a little bit like springs when you walk on them. You can store a little bit of energy in it and it can release it as you move around. So it provides some propulsive forces, not as much as a, a muscle could provide, but it provides some. So those new materials in the 90s provided a new advance to prosthetic limbs. And then as time moved a little farther forward, some of these other technologies I mentioned, uh, the computational power of microcontrollers or mini computers, and the battery density, uh, the power that could be provided in a small battery, greatly improved, then through the 2000s, 2015 or so, those advances led to, well, great improvements in what we think the state of the art is at what's commercially available, of course, always legs that a little bit, but the prototype limbs that my research team is working on and others both in the United States and around the world have really improved basically because we have those technologies available to us today. As, a, as the nerdiest question that I could possibly come up with, do you see a, a point where prosthetics are going to be superior to what we're born with? Well, sometimes we already see that now. We have available, commercially available, some devices that have motors in them that help people walk. And when the control of those limbs is wholly left in the hands of the patient, they tend to ratchet up the power output so that it can kind of propel them along better than ever. So you can certainly do that in my laboratory where you're wearing a harness connected to an overhead track so that if things go wrong, well, you don't really fall all that far. But if you're out in real life and you have a powerful limb that lets you run faster than anybody else around you, well, then that could potentially lead to some other injuries. So there's kind of some, what you might say, ethical and other considerations that uh, we need to think about keeping our patients safe. Do you want to talk about a challenge you faced in your career and how you overcame it or what sort of lessons you've learned from it? Well, probably the most frustrating thing of all is a big picture thing. And it's generally accepted that it takes about 17 years to go from an idea of a medical device and getting it to patients. And 17 years sounds like an outrageous amount of time. And part of the reason for that long timeline is that it requires a lot of steps. First, you got to get it off the drawing board and make prototypes. You got to demonstrate the device's safety first, but it also, you need to demonstrate that, well, it works as intended. So 17 years is a long time. In the world of prosthetic limbs, it takes about 10 years from ideation to a commercial product. But a decade, gosh, that's still a really long time. So 
How do you translate ideas and get them to the marketplace? So for me, that's probably been the most frustrating experience because sometimes we have things that work great in the lab, but how do we get it out of the lab? The VA, that's something that they're putting a lot more effort into and providing us with a lot more resources to help us get through that so-called valley of death and get it into the hands of patients. Can you kind of walk us through how do you go from an idea to actually making a prototype to actually seeing it come on the market? Yeah, well, the starting point for all of our research projects really is the veteran with a lower limb amputation because we want to build things that improve their mobility, their comfort, to try to prevent any injuries from happening to them, any from what they've already perhaps sustained. We start with the veteran and we ask them what the needs are. Then we start to explore how might we address that. And a great spot to start, of course, is looking at the commercial marketplace. Because if there's something out there that works, then let's start with that. And sometimes, though, there's very little evidence supporting whether or not a commercially available device will work. So in that case, we often conduct a study to determine whether or not a particular device is efficacious. Does it work? And if that's the case, if it does work, then we try to share those results so clinicians can prescribe these devices using what you call evidence-based medicine. But what do you do if there is no such device? And that we see all the time. We've got lots of prototypes in development. And so that's the next step for us is we try to identify design requirements for what would address the problem that our veteran with a limb loss is experiencing. If they need a device that can help them keep their balance a little better, then we explore what the forces are and the motor sizes and the sensors we need to try and improve their balance. And once we've got some design requirements, then we set about building the thing. And for me, that's probably the most exciting part because it offers so much potential. You're building something that you think can help somebody. And once we've got a prototype, then we start in the laboratory setting where we conduct experiments to determine, does this device do what we think it does? And is it better than what they've already got? And an example of that might be a prosthetic limb that can help you walk on uneven terrain. There's not very much out there in the marketplace that is particularly suited for that. So can we build a limb? Well, we have. We've got a prototype that can conform to uneven terrain. And we started with having somebody walk in the laboratory on uneven terrain. So we take those steps from ideation and discussion with veterans to hopefully commercialization to get those limbs out where people can make use of them. We've seen robotic prosthetics in, in all kinds of sci-fi movies and video games. Do you watch those things with any sort of inspiration or are, are you constantly rolling your eyes? Definitely on the side of inspiration. It's great to see what Hollywood thinks can be done because we're often aligned with that. We think we can build limbs that can do what, well, what the limb you were born with does. And we're very excited about 
creating those limbs and getting them into the hands of veterans. I would say that there's no rolling the eyes. In fact, I think it's more like, wow, I wish everybody believes that this could be done. Sometimes we have to argue with people to convince them of our vision. And so Hollywood gets us that much closer to it. What would you say that the future holds for, for your work? And what are some of the opportunities you're excited about? Well, on my desk, I have three crystal balls. And the first one, yeah, what I see in there is the use of machine learning or maybe low-level artificial intelligence to control sensorized and motorized limbs. We're seeing prototypes of those right now, but they're not very advanced. But over the next five years, I think those capacities are going to be fully harnessed and we'll see an explosion of these kind of devices commercially available for our veterans to get prescriptions for. The second crystal ball looks a little farther down the timeline, and that involves a surgical procedure called osseointegration, where a surgeon prepares a residual limb of an amputee and connects their limb to the prosthetic components themselves. And that direct skeletal attachment is really exciting because it really lets people feel their surroundings via that direct skeletal attachment. But any surgery like that comes with risks. So the VA, through a group in Utah, is working diligently to make sure that this surgical procedure and the technologies and materials involved are not only safe, but they work well for our veterans. And then that third crystal ball shows me something that, sadly, I don't think I'll see in my lifetime, but we all learned how to grow a limb once, and that blueprint still exists in our DNA. And can we harness that blueprint to regenerate or regrow a limb? And hopefully that's something that won't take 15 years to regrow, but that we can accelerate that process. I really hope that one day that's actual possibility because no matter how advanced I think our prototypes are or how advanced they might become in the next five or 10 years or 20 years, nothing beats the natural limb. So if we could regrow that, that would be something to resolve all these kind of problems. Professor Glenn Clutie, research career scientist and professor at the University of Washington, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for all the work you do. It's been my pleasure to participate. I look forward to the next time we get a chance to talk. Sean, that was an amazing episode, and I have so much more understanding, respect, yeah. and, and appreciation just for everything that Same Fred here. has been through and for what amazing things Glenn is working on. I'm so excited to see what the future brings. I definitely am, am looking forward to robot arms and legs <laughs> that that I will want to have because my arms can't do the cool stuff that they can do. <laughs> so next well, week. Yes, next week. I'm very excited because we're going to do a little bit more deep dive into the 75th anniversary of the Veterans Health Administration, which is why we're, we're here starting this podcast. So I'm very excited to get in a little bit more and to dig into some of the history surrounding the creation of the Department of Medicine and Surgery, which is what VHA was known in 1946. So I think we've got some great guests lined up for that, and I'm excited for our discussion. 
Me too. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining the podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.